0: Hello and welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show. We've got a slightly different episode for you this month. Our Head of Machinery, Toby Whatley, is hosting this one, and we're looking at risk management in agriculture. So three farmers, including myself, sat down with Toby in the lovely Plough and Harrow pub near Malvern and discussed how our three very different farming businesses are riding the storm that is today's climate.
1: Hello, welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast. I'm the machinery editor for Farmer's Guardian. And joining me are three farmers, one of whom you have heard before, multiple times, looking at the topic of risk and resilience. Now, sort of introduced initially that we're not thinking about risk as in a form of health and safety, but a risk in forms of business risk and resilience. So around the table now, we're recording this in a, in a true agricultural fashion in a pub. We've bribed them with beer and food, which I think is probably going to work quite well. And joining me, we've got three farmers, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi. I'm Adam Lewis from North Herefordshire.
2: Um, my property lies between Bromyard and Leinster, um, rising up to 740 feet, uh, virtually all arable um, units that comprises part owned and part rented, run by myself and my wife with um, labour, just relying on, on myself with a little bit of harvest help.
3: Uh, I'm Rob Beaumont, and um, I farm on the Herefordshire-Worcestershire border, um, just near Malvern. Um, we are 200 hectares of arable cropping, and we run a contracting business as well. And I also work for Oedipus as an agronomist.
0: I'm Alice Dyer, um, normally the podcast host, but I'm being interviewed today, um, so I'm wearing my farmer hat. We rent about. 160 hectares of land um, and we grow baby leaf salads, so we're not strictly arable farmers but we've recently taken on a Warwickshire county council farm uh, so we're dabbling in the world of arable crops and we're new entrants so everything is rented and we don't own any land
1: great stuff so my interest in this um, topic derived from another meeting in the pub with Rob and I was talking about business risk. And if we look outside of agriculture, so businesses such as manufacturing or any any business largely in financials, consider risk deeply regularly. It's a really important part of the decision-making process. So why things happen, why things don't happen. From a manufacturing point of view, we're thinking about supply chains, components, the sales pipeline. It's very, very risk-driven and risk-considered. Now, agriculture doesn't necessarily have the same opportunities largely because it's completely dependent on the weather but I just on that topic if you each one of you'd like to tell us what what's your perceived approach to risk and what does it mean to your business've um,
2: we've been established for for some years now uh, we pretty much started as new entrants um, although I come from a farming background. Um, I'd been out of sort of practical farming for, for some time when, when we got started. <clears throat> we were lucky, really, in the fact that we came back to um, be tenants on on my wife's family farm, although we pretty much started from from scratch, in effect. So then my attitude to risk really was very belts and braces, couldn't afford to take any risk. So everything was ri- underwritten to the point, really, we knew exactly where we were going for the foreseeable future, whether it was from, from a, a rolling 12-monthly perspective or whether it was from a perspective of borrowing money where we'd actually underwrite um, short-term loans via mortgage. So we've got ourselves established and then sort of now our, our attitude towards risk is to the point really where we're relatively relaxed about it, knowing that we're established and have been established long enough to, um, to take a hit if we need to. Previously, you know, one poor year would, would have put us down, really. Um, now, if we need to take a hit regarding weather, cross crop risks, financial risk, uh, we could do that if we, uh, if we
1: needed to. On the topic there, you were saying that when you started out, you couldn't, you know, one bad year put you down. and Now, effectively, you're able to. Have you grown your financial resilience or have you become more tolerant of a greater amount of risk in your time as a farmer? We've grown our um, resilience. We borrowing
2: amount isn't anywhere near what it used to be. Obviously, as new entrants, we levered everything that we possibly could to uh, to borrow money. So tractor was on finance. Um, Luckily enough, the landlord was very understanding, so he put us you know in a position that we didn't have to pay up front, which is which is great. Crops we had finance for. With planting the crops and the fertilizer. And so, pretty much everything that we did for the first three, four, five years was sort of borrowing money just to keep rolling it forward, trying to get a little bit of asset behind us. We then looked at putting up buildings. The building, first building that we put up was was on a mortgage, which is fair enough. That was actually then on what you'd now consider really you know what got a ridiculous mortgage rate for for putting up a shed but that's the the risk angle that we had that we took from the perspective that we couldn't um from the perspective that we couldn't um, take any risk in case we had a had a hard season and also then we regarding marketing marketing our um, marketing our crop we went with a buying group that knew that um we knew that they actually had we knew that this marketing group actually had liability insurance in case a someone defaulted on them. So we were guaranteed our money. I think that cost, you know, didn't cost a lot of money to actually to buy that into the to the sale price of the of the crop, but we knew exactly where we were with it.
1: So thinking about a slightly different approach, so Rob, your business is is probably a similar age, problems, is it? No, our business would be um, a bit older than um,
3: Adam's. Uh, my father uh, took on the farm in the eighties from my grandparents. It was ex-dairy um, and my uncle set up the da- his own business with the dairy herd. And then my dad was um, left with the farm and a beef unit, which I think in the nineties, couple of small kids was quite hard going. My dad trained as a mechanic, so he set up a contracting business, um, started growing some arable crops, got out of beef. We were in hops for a short amount of time. Well, as they're trying to sort of diversify their income um, on that, but that didn't quite sort of work out. So really the business has, has sort of changed now from being sort of predominantly on the contracting side of things uh, with a, a bit of arable on the side to now predominantly arable, as the main form of income um, which has overtaken the contracting. But in terms of risk management, our business, we're only 15 hectares of the land is owned and so the rest is all rented in or contract farmed. So for us, the main thing is to have a diversified income stream so that we're not relying on one enterprise for our our whole business. Yeah, we've undergone quite a few changes in the last five years. We've doubled, doubled the amount of arable now we do. we put up um, some modern grain storage on the farm now. Um, so we're in quite a good position, obviously, owning the base uh, that we operate from, which has just given us the opportunity to expand. But, yeah, so that's why I've taken on a, a part-time role as well as an agronomist, um, just to you know sort of guarantee uh, an income uh, that's away from the farm.
1: So between the two, so you're... You know, Adam, you're talking about that your business is relatively young, but actually quite centred around what you do. Yeah. Yours, Rob, is is older, but, but more diverse in your income streams and yeah, and what you're doing. With it. Yeah. As a contractor, do you think your risk approach is different? Do you take greater risk? Would you, would you, you know, would you work in conditions that you don't think are as ideal if you're a landowner, or do you feel that because you are reporting to somebody, even the owner of the land? As a contractor it changes your view of how you do things
3: um to a certain extent i mean we always try and do uh any of our contracting operations in the, the most timely and efficient manner and um, to get the best outcome i think the big thing from the contracting point of view now for risk is the cost to run and maintain machinery for the for what you can earn with it it's, it's in the serious review and um adam adam and i have obviously both um in the same monitor farm program. Um, so we've done quite a bit of benchmarking and cost analysis on, on machinery. And I think actually from a risk point of view, uh, inflated machinery prices starting to eat into, into margins. And um, there has to be serious awareness of what these machines cost to run and operate before you can go out into the market with them. And
2: also how quickly that's changed.
3: Very quickly, yeah. You know,
2: when I started, So, you know, fairly long time ago, 30 grand would buy you a fair fair piece of machinery. Now, you know, you can hardly go into a dealer's yard and 30 grand would be like, well, okay, you've got a very limited amount of machinery that that you're gonna buy, certainly with, if you want an engine included in it, probably want to be starting 130 before you get anything. And with the way that machinery has moved, very often you can't fix it yourself either. So you're almost then tied into the dealership.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more, you know, say my father trained as a mechanic, so he's great on anything sort of pre 1995, but as soon as it needs a laptop, um, that's it, it's a dealer charge. So um, yeah, it, it, these the, that that side of, um, of of farming and farm businesses, um, I think really does need
1: quite a lot of attention. So I. I wanted to pick that up again, but I appreciate we haven't actually spoken to Alice about her business, which is potentially quite different. So you're you're a tenant farmer on a on a council tenancy, sort yeah. of new entrance, but you're also growing a very high value um, salad crop, which is effectively direct to consumer, so it's going to supermarkets and you sort of you know, sort of said before we started recording that your you know some of your crop turnaround was between establishment and harvest of 30 days. Now I put, I put that question to the other two guys and they were saying, well, oh, you know, 10 months, 12 months, and then we might be months, 18 months by the time we've certainly the grains and sold it. So a huge different approach to effectively still growing something and selling it, but also all the land you grow on is, is, is tenanted. Because of your short harvest intervals and the value of the crop you grow and harvest, do you think you're more or less risk adverse because... If it takes you 18 months to grow and sell a crop, you've got 18 months to think about the mistake, it takes you 30 days to grow and sell a crop, you can get a lot more mistakes in the same amount of time. Does that make you different? I presume it is different, but where where are you? that
0: is a good point. So I would say, I guess for us, because we could grow three crops a year, we technically could have three seasons in a year. So like this season, the start of the season was awful, the crops did really badly, now, they're starting to look right, so we could have, you know, this part of the season could be a good one. Who knows what's going to happen? It might not rain for the rest of the season. So I suppose, in a way, we're kind of lucky because we can we can have those three crops in a year, whereas you guys, you know, you've got kind of one shot at it. Do you
2: feel as though you're very much more, probably more though, so than Rob and myself growing commodity crops such as wheat and barley, do you feel as though you're at the vagrancies and the mercy of the supermarkets, perhaps a little bit more pressurising pressurizing yeah, you guys? I
0: think so because, well, first of all, with salad, they're very particular about the way it looks. Mm. So if it's, you know, a centimetre too big or too small, some weeks they'll say, no, we can't have that, that's no good. The next week when they don't have enough product, they'll take anything, so they're kind of... Yeah, I guess we're, we're more kind of at mercy to the supermarkets.
1: So thinking about um, my obviously preferred topic, machinery, and you said you to sort of, uh, Rob, touched it right before, looking at the changes in machinery pricing. Alice, your business is relatively machinery heavy, but for a very short period of time. Do you, does that change the way you invest in machines because you don't need necessarily... Uh, a strategy to own kit for a very, very long time, or do you? I don't know. Are you buying kit and fully depreciating it, or are you hiring kit and using it for your 60 days, 90 days harvest period and then say send it back? Does your approach to kit say I need to keep everything in house so I know my cost? As I've got that crop variation, that sales variation, I know where I sit, or do you keep the minimum amount of capital that you can in machinery because because of that variation in how you sell your property? The of the
0: so I would say, firstly, because of the position we're in as new entrants, we don't have kind of any capital behind us. So the option of buying like a brand new tractor just isn't possible for us. So we we rent everything pretty much, which works well because obviously we're using it every day for six months of the year, and then the rest of the time it would just be sat in a shed. And also, you kind of get the support if it breaks down, whereas if you're, you know, having to fix it yourself when you desperately need to harvest, then it's not much good. Um we do buy some kit, but it's probably not the best. (laughs) There's a lot of breakdowns. Um so we tend to go for kind of if we are buying anything it'll be cheap because that's kind of what we can afford. So we do tend to rent kit rather than buy it.
1: So moving back to two of the businesses. Rob, I understand most of your kit you own. Mm Would you ever consider hiring machinery? So Alice has said, actually, we only need we only need machinery for our harvest period, much like your combine. But you own your combine. Would you hire? Would you consider hiring a combine and fit more to Alice's business model, or do you see owning your own combine instead of going to a hire a company and hiring a combine? Do you see that as a as a better management risk for you, or? Is it more security to know that you know what you've got and you know how it works and you can manage your harvest risk by knowing your output and having an idea of what you can achieve? Yeah, well, I've looked
3: at um, uh, for high-capital items like combines. Um, I have looked at hiring, um, but actually, when we sort of worked out the cost um, per acre, um, it, for the mach- compared to the machine that we own, it was more expensive. And I also did some contracting with our combine, which I view as a fixed cost spreading exercise to bring in extra income to pay to maintain it and keep it keep it up together. So, yeah, I'm sort of I'm quite happy with that that structure. Um, we have hired tractors in the past before, which has worked well, but we've sort of consolidated our machinery fleet to what we need, and so we have the capital tied up in those machines now. But yeah, I mean, I'm quite open to the idea of uh, releasing equity out of the machines. And then um, hiring in what we need.
2: Um, Regarding myself, initially we were quite heavily focused around contractors um, with just one base unit of a a tractor, sprayer, fertilizer, spinner, for example. Um, So, and as the business has developed, we've managed really to consolidate and, and sort of buy our own. Machinery up until probably five or six years ago, I was actually had too much machinery around me. Then um, I moved to different drilling process of strip till, um, which then really made a lot of the machinery that I was carrying redundant. So I think I probably moved from ten units, for example, of machinery to establish a crop down to three now. So there was quite some serious restructuring, which was quite nice to see the machinery going off the, off the farm. But you do feel as though then you are a little bit reliant on the, the elements, uh, uh, elemental, uh, elemental machinery that you've got, which is basically a drill, a role in the press which is what i'm running at the moment as my my drilling outfit which is great um but then if there's a little bit of a fly in the ointment like a wet year this year then you know you either have to go out and and uh, rent or hire a little ripper just to rip the ground up a little bit just to let some air in dry it out um but over saying that um it does release release some capital for you to do other bits and pieces with
1: so that's interesting because i know rob here direct drills as well direct drilling Mm-hmm. And I appreciate for some you if that isn't an option, you're quite intensive in your village regime. Is direct drilling a, a sole benefit to your business for a capital reservation? So you're keeping some of that capital and non investing some Is it a better risk? Is that crop better risk reserved because you are putting less energy into establishing it? Or did you go into direct drilling because it reduced the labour inputs and the, the financial capital you were putting out to get that crop in and reduced your weather window, or increased your weather window, I guess, sorry, to get that crop established. Initially, for me, um, it was purely regarding,
2: regarding a, a timing issue, being a sort of one-man one, one man system in effect that I was running at the time and still I'm um, running. It was all about trying to get that crop established as quickly and as efficiently as I possibly could on my own. It did mean that I had to upgrade my tractor to a bigger tractor, um, go out and buy the strip-till machine. But then it did release then elements of my other machinery purchases or, or ownership that I wasn't using. Um, I do think that my business has actually become more resilient as a uh, as a consequence, uh, get the crops established more evenly, uh, and certainly, From a profitability perspective, my business certainly has benefited, I believe, from actually going to a direct drill system. So, Rob, you still
1: run effectively non-direct drill products for non-customers that aren't looking at that. So you can give a comparison between the two to why you have one and why you have the other.
3: Yeah, so, well, I mean, we also run uh, a Missouri uh, strip till drill, um, and then we also run a combination drill, um, which services some of our customers are on, uh, on the drilling side of the contracting business, and um, that aren't quite ready to move into the strip till system. Uh, I mean, very much similar for Adam. I mean, there's, there's me and my father was labour on the farm, um, and so the strip till System enables us to get crops established quickly with a lower fuel requirement. And there's also the sort of soil health um, and soil structure point of view as well, that we're not not doing quite so much tillage. Would I get rid of the combination drill? Um, No. I still find that on some of our crops, we grow um, dairy whole crop for uh, a customer. And actually for spring crops, especially in challenging years, um, having that flexibility to be able to uh, sort of drill in a more conventional way allows us to establish reliably. Um, but for our, certainly for our sort of home home farm, so to speak, I'm trying to keep it as uh, as much strip till as possible, but I quite like having the flexibility of doing what I need to do that's right for the crop. Do you think, Rob, that if it wasn't for your contracting
2: business, you'd get rid of your combination unit you'd get rid of certain other elements of your machinery profile yeah, you know yeah. from the perspective of then offloading off offloading yeah. kits and actually then trying to resource or remanage that
3: I think I think if uh, I definitely think if the sort of labor dynamic changed at the farm that it, that it was just me um, then definitely um, because I just wouldn't I wouldn't have the time to be doing the cultivating and the, all the prep work required for more conventional drilling. But I've also sort of got half an eye on the fact that if something like glyphosate gets banned or we end up in a scenario where we've got a particular grassweed issue, that we own the machinery that gives us the flexibility to deal with that. So if I have to go and plough a field uh, because it's agronomically the right thing to do, I will. Um, but yeah, I mean, going forward, you could just say, well, if you had a particular spot scenario, you could hire somebody else in or hire the machine to do that um, and offload some capital. So yeah, it's all it's under review all the time, whether or not we need to keep it.
2: That's quite an interesting one, really, from the perspective that um, I suppose I'm a little bit older than yourself. My attitude towards risk has changed a lot from when I started to where I am now, and also really from you know, having two daughters. They're interested in agriculture, they're interested in the farm, but they don't want to be farmers. You know, my attitude towards risk is, you know, I take it if you need to now, before, um, some years ago, you know, you chase pretty much anything you possibly could and say, well, okay, there's a, there's risk there, but then you'd assess it and see really if it's going to benefit the, the business long term. I think my... My forecast, my projections probably aren't quite as long as yours as they are at the moment, because obviously <laughs> you know the ears on you. You're so. out of them, but, mm-hmm. So that has changed that has changed my perspective really on, on risk and risk management.
1: Yes. Uh, with all aware because I going to use your comment on projection to them, Oscaris. Because you are a new entrant. So exactly by yeah. you pretty much where I was
2: 25, yeah. 20 years ago.
1: Alan touched upon then that his his time in the business has changed, He's approach to risk and he's thinking about effectively the business for the next generation. Yeah. So Alice, you're at the other end of that journey. Do you think you're more you're not more happier? Do you think you're happier to look at investments for the longer term? Or do you see the, the salad baby salad crop, do you see that something that happening in thirty years' time? Or is that a way to draw capital from agriculture now to then invest in another, in another, you
0: know, income stream. What you say definitely resonates in that, like, we are very kind of high risk, high reward, we're we're willing to take a lot of risks at the moment, because we don't really have anything to lose. Mm. Because, you know, we don't own anything that we could actually lose. Yeah, so I'd say the more time goes on, the less risk we're probably willing to take. But you know, at the start, we we were happy to take big risks and hopefully get have big to rewards, in the, yeah.
2: In the fledgling business, you have to work I, hard and take risks.
0: Yeah, and I think all farmers are risk-takers, aren't they? Because yeah. you wouldn't put a crop in the ground and keep your fingers crossed yeah. for nine, we, ten months, would you, otherwise?
2: Yeah. So, so we have looked at sort of diversification, and all diversification that we've looked at seems to be, you know, not high risk, but... Relatively high risk going away from your skill set, taking out funds from the business that you could possibly use, you know, better. So, we've actually gone down a route of um, things that maybe the government have underwritten. For example, Holiday Cottage, that we got a nice little grant to set that up. We've gone into biomass. Um, that we know we've got a 20-year contract written by the government. We've gone into solar, 25-year contract written by the government. Um, they, there are some things that you can more or less plot um, and say, well, as a matter of fact, that's going to take me seven years to pay back. That's going to take me five years to pay back, etc. And you say, well, as a matter of fact, we know exactly where our risk element is there,
1: um, which is a direction that we have pretty much pursued quite hard, really. So your comments then about looking at things that are government-supported grants, those quite conveniently bring me on to a question that I've got for all of you, actually. So we'll see the grant scheme, so recently we have the FE, FETF scheme that offered um, infrastructure grants for machinery and, and capital equipment. When you look at taking on a grant to buy machinery, or taking on a grant to buy additions to your business, do you ever look at a, like a benefit-cost Analysis. So, yes, the grant won't cover all of it. So, the grant covers forty percent of it. Or however, you know, it depends on the you're with who's supplying it. Do you factor in the fact that even though that it's it is grant available, do you still need it, and does that change that opportunity, or is it an attitude of well, it's available, so you might as well have one?
2: Yeah, and then regard regarding myself, and I don't want to go. Um, talking you know speaking too much give Rob a chance um but yeah we use the grant schemes as much as we possibly can for example drill sprayer um other elements of the business have, have been underwritten by government grants um and this worked really well for us but I think then you've got to say well as a matter of fact there's no point doing it unless you need it or want it or um, it's going to take you in a different direction, um, such as you know new new started drilling strip till, for example. If you wanted to go down that, the government are offering those incentives because that's the way they want you to go. They want you to look after the soil, which they perceive direct drilling has been a benefit. Obviously, cattle handling and sheep handling equipment, and all the rest of it, is another element of encouraging farmers to perhaps be doing sheep and cattle husbandry in a, a higher welfare manner, whether it's looking after the man or whether it's looking after the animal better. I think that's really, it's almost government's incentive.
3: Uh, yeah, we um, haven't had any of that machinery through grant schemes. Um, I sort of, my sort of view on it is that I, will, I, I don't want to let the grant scheme Decide the direction of my business. So, when we moved into strip Hill, uh, we bought a second-hand machine um, that we could afford to fund through the business directly, rather than necessarily buying new, because um, it was quite a low-risk option for us. Uh, because if we if we didn't want, if we decided the system wasn't right for us, the machine had already taken most of its depreciation, so we could we could move it on. Um, but I'm not opposed to having grants if they facilitate something that I actually. I'm already prepared to invest in, but I sort of I sort of think that the, the investment needs to, to sort of stand alone in its own right. Um, I wouldn't necessarily buy something just because there was a grant on it. Mm, absolutely.
1: So on that one topic, so Alice, your business is significantly more specialist in the kit that you use and the things you have. Okay, so prime tractors are largely the same. Do you feel the schemes offer opportunities for growers like yourself? Which are putting a lot more direct into the UK food supply chain than, you know, Adam and Rob, whose grain larger, who could be exported. So, if we're thinking about actually, you know, food security, your son's business is giving better food security to the UK mm. than your two businesses mm. by the nature of what you produce. Yeah. So, do the grant schemes fully support you and could they be different in that respect to help you manage that?
0: I guess the thing with the grant schemes is you have to look at what the government is trying to get out of it so at the moment you know like direct drills and stuff they obviously want improved soil health so none of the stuff that we would need like you know specialist drills or harvesters is going to do that so they're not providing that whereas if there was suddenly a food security crisis and they suddenly thought we need to be growing more prune veg then it might change but yeah at the moment it just doesn't fit in with what the government are trying to achieve so it's not There's not really the kit on there that would help us.
1: With returns to, I guess, the idea that you're talking about financial support, we are heading to a period of the end of direct payments. Um, So for some businesses, say, Adam, most of your farming career, well, all of your farming career would have been with direct payments. Yeah. Alice, you don't get any direct payments, is that correct? No,
0: nothing.
1: And then, Rob, you've got a mix of direct payments between land you own and then do, did you have any direct payments with any land that you, some of the land you rent to? Yeah, yeah, we do
3: um, on 40 hectares worth the BPS is basically our only government subsidy. Um, so for our business, the loss of BPS is
1: uh, an inconvenience, but it, it isn't business critical. Thinking about direct payments, how will your free businesses change with the removal of direct payments? Now, Alice, I'm imagining very little at all. But will it have an impact on the land you rent or other farmers?
0: Well, ever the optimist, I thought, you know, the loss of direct payments might make land access easier. But I think with the way kind of nature markets are going and people wanting to rewild everything, it probably is not going to happen. And then there's also the kind of risk that our landlords will want to be clawing some of that money that they've lost through direct payments out of their tenants. So by increasing the rent... Because most of the, the land that we rent is on an annual basis, so we kind of rent within other growers' rotations. So they can they can up the rent every year if they wanted. The council farm's kind of given us a bit of stability because it's, it's a 10-year ten tenancy, but yeah, it's still a worry. But I guess it also means that we might have potential to have access to environmental payments and things like that going forward, which we haven't been able to get before, so...
1: So I don't know, you from what you were saying earlier, you sound like you've built quite a lot of resilience to um, um, effectively income without BPS. Do you does BPS play a big role in your business now, or have you structured your business that you have effectively thought we're not going to have it? We need to farm without it, and that's the direction my business is going. Yeah,
2: pretty much as your last comment was really with in there, we're saying bye bye to BPS and. Um, yeah, pretty much resigned to them with the fact that obviously we're going to have to farm without it and they don't think it's going to affect our business um, to the extent that it would have done some years ago because we've factored in other little diversifications to actually sort of take the role of that. Um, I wouldn't like to say that we could foresee it coming but we've managed to then build a little bit of resilience in through as I was saying other government funded projects um, and also you know, we're quite heavily involved in that particular area, the countryside, um, in mid-tier um, mid-tier schemes. And also we will be looking to go to SFI. Um, we haven't jumped into that yet, but I would thought very, very likely we'll be there in the, in the autumn. And also whether it's going to be some sort of trading platform for carbon or possibly even natural capital. Well, that's an area that we're looking at. I suppose you could say we're trying to farm a little farm a little smarter than harder, if you catch what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Rob, you were saying of your farmed area, slightly less than the 25% that you see PPS in, yep. do you think that will change the way in which the customers you do stubble-to-stubble or farming agreements with, would it change the type of service you offer? Now, you, you touched on, you're quite regenerative, you're, a, you're a, an agronomist, you do... You know, facts as well so you're you're quite different to maybe a lot of farmers that you'll you do the whole service and you also look at other farms input management mm-hmm. do you think that changes the way that you offer that service and makes it more attractive to people who who are landlords and want somebody farming farm
3: for? yeah well, i'd like to think so i say the company that i work for um at Foss um it was sort of a more um reduced input focused agronomic service and I think, you know, having that ability to be in control of the inputs for the contract farming services that we provide enables me to keep on top of that and certainly doing things through the benchmarking through the HDB that we've done uh, over the years really highlighted to me the importance of being able to keep on top of your variable costs. And that's something that I'm really sort of quite focused on with our business. And then so for our landlords who we're contract farming for, I'd like to think that I'm providing them the sort of the best service and the most efficient way of growing their crops for them. And I do think there is scope for that going forward in terms of offering a service of being able to offer that complete package of not not just sort of providing the fixed costs uh, for somebody else's business in terms of machinery um, and storage, but also having that sort of finer attention to detail on, on management, I think will be more important. And we, you know, our, our, our business is not, uh, reliant on the taxpayer particularly, and I've diversified our income stream so that, you know, we can, we can cope with sort of fluctuations within grain markets that it, you know, it doesn't necessarily, we can still go to the shops and buy our food. It doesn't matter really what you're doing, whether it's growing lettuce,
2: whether you're contracting, whether you're producing widgets. Or steel, being Mr. Average, doesn't pay really. You've got to be top 25% plus. Otherwise, really, you're just going to drift off into fresh air and disappear. You've got to be within the top 25% and pushing, I think, to be a resilient and profitable company and one fit for the future.
3: Yeah, and you've got to know, I mean, you know, Adam and I have done a lot of work with this uh, in terms of knowing our cost of production. And I think that's really going to be key for a lot of arable businesses going forward is actually understanding what it is that it costs you to produce a ton of wheat or seed rape. So you can actually make a marketing decision based on yeah. on that so you you know where you are. And I think for a lot of UK businesses going forward, actually, there's going to have to be a greater focus on cost of production, understanding what your input costs are, what your sale price needs to be, and, and mitigating risk um accordingly to your cost of production certainly with the loss of PPS there's not going to be much margin for error
1: so with your your opinions then on understanding costs it quite conveniently brings me to a topic of interest in me which is which is data so within the machinery sector we we will talk about things you know the machinery you put diesel in the more you put methane in the more hydrogen which is the future mm-hmm. um The other aspect is always data, so if you look at any of your big manufacturers, there will be a system of data collection from farm, be it yield data, be it nitrogen use, nitrogen output, um, fuel usage and machinery and all those all those factors. How important for your business in the next 10 years will be data management and collection?
3: That is a very, very good question. Um, Now, the data collection side of the thing, who has the data, who collects it, and who has access to it is probably a podcast within itself. Um, My data collection, well, I collect the data that I need to collect, which is how much have I spent, how much have I sold it for, and how much have I got in the shed? Um, And that is basically the data that I need. Do... Outside actors need to know exactly how much I've produced off my combine. No, they don't. They don't need to know that. Because the more data that is collected and centrally held, the more open we are to manipulation within the market. Well, they can weaponise it, can't they, in effect? Yeah. So actually, I think the data collection is something that farmers really need to think about and who they give it away to, who owns it where it's being used, because you can guarantee it won't be for the benefit of us. So I'm glad you brought up data, because that, that will be another <laughs> that will be a whole other podcast. But yeah, it is a big issue. Uh, you know, If you've got manufacturers um, who are collecting, say, yield data from a combine and then storing that centrally, what's to stop them selling that to a big grain merchant or marketer? And they know exactly how much is produced. Well, once you've taken variability, or sorry, once you've taken the unknowns out of a market, you haven't actually got a true market anymore, have you? It happens already, really, doesn't it? As soon as you go on yeah. the internet, press the accept cookies.
2: Yeah, that's it. You're open to everything that is going to come through your uh, through your cloud or whatever it is to to your computer network. And I think it's very much a very useful marketing and buying tool for uh, whether you're selling a piece of machinery or buying your grain. So um, I think we do have to be very careful about how we let third parties use our data. Otherwise, really, we're going to be um, responsible for a, not necessarily our own demise, but we certainly
3: won't be responsible for our own successes. So um, Yes, very much so. And actually, I think there's a huge usually benefit benefit data management within within a farming business in, in terms of collecting information on like fuel use or or crop inputs or yield in an area? You know, what is is, is that field performing? Is that corner of the field performing? All that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think I think there is value in that, but in terms of sort of mass data collection um, and and who holds that mass data, I think that is a topic that agriculture really needs to get to go through.
1: Adam and Rob, you're both talking about data collection on a global global commodity. Now, Alice, you don't grow a global commodity. So do you see a value in collecting data? How much data do you collect on the crops you grow? Because your 30-day harvest windows mean that you can go from profit to loss, presumably very, very quickly. So do you, do you have a greater focus on it? Or is it just a very different strategy of buying and selling that doesn't allow you to collect it, or do you not even have the? T- is the technology available there for you to do it in the first place?
0: So we're very into like spreadsheets and numbers and knowing exact, you know, kilo per square meter of salad produced. So it is very, it is very data intensive, but we don't have the technology. I guess because it's such a niche crop, mostly to be using like you know big platforms.
1: Adam, you touched on the start. You said mm-hmm. my labour units I put in, are yourself and your wife, Rob, your labour units and, you and your dad. Mm-hmm. Now, Alice, your labour units are quite different. Because how many do you employ across your your business?
0: So at this time of year, so peak season, we've got about 15 workers. Most of them Romanian live on site um, and then they just come back every year and go home for the winter
1: if we think about labor units and the use of labor now it's just you and your wife Adam, yeah. and it's you and your dad if one of you is taken ill one of you can't do it for whatever reason has that been factored into let's like, say your direct drilling approach because it fundamentally reduces your available you know your your labor requirement or alice because you're requi- you are relying on overseas labor Do you think that you think about cropping, you think about the type of crops you grow or how you grow them to try and mitigate the risk that if somebody isn't there to drive the tractor, to fill the boxes, to do other activities, does that change the way that you think about your business?
2: I think there's several different ways really that you can look at that. For example, direct drilling to me is a far simpler system to actually be establishing crops so you can employ a... A member of staff, for example, if, for example, I was to become ill to drive the drill. who wasn't quite as skilled. It was with a plough to um, possibly then establish it. It's quite straightforward. And also, you know, if I do become ill, I've got insurance then to say, as a matter of fact, it'll pay a certain amount of money per per week then to employ a member of staff. But it is is quite... uh, on the back of your mind really the fact that you do have to be careful you do have to just mind what you're doing to to make sure that the business isn't vulnerable to the the big gear in the gearbox you know going sideways as it were so yeah it is something that is on constantly on my mind and you know swot analysis is another podcast really
3: yeah i think you know for us um so there's the two of us within the business and we've got local people that you know we do Employed casually to help us out so i mean if we did get in a pickle i'm sure that we'd um be able to sort of muddle through uh but yeah a bit a bit like adam that's part of the sort of the shift to the strip till and sort of focusing on what on what we're doing um, and why we're doing things to, to try and reduce that that risk factor um and, go, and going forward yeah i think labor will be potentially an issue for us um And at that point, I think if it's just me on my own, um, then I will consolidate down as to what uh, I want to do in terms of farming uh, and then running alongside my agronomy job as to what gives us, um, for a young family, um, what gives us the sort of best balance in terms of income um, and actually sort of having a life as well.
1: So my final question, and you both touched upon it, or or two touched upon it, on labor units and risk labor units, autonomy. So I will look at new machinery coming out, we're looking at increasingly autonomous, there are versions of, of both tractors you actually use in the US that are fully autonomous. Now that is available in Europe for various legal reasons. Do you see autonomy, so completely removing the operator in the system altogether and in increasing amounts of AI-based decisions, do you see that being a major benefit long-term? or an additional cost that you will have to manage and risk assess in different ways? Uh, Massive
3: benefit. I mean, if we can get to the point where we uh, have got autonomous units in the field that we can set off to do, we're going to reduce axle weights because we won't need cabs, operator environments, all that kind of stuff. Um, We're going to free up labour time, and we're actually going to be able to allow farmers to spend more time actually managing what they do rather than attending a steering wheel. So, I actually am really quite excited about the concept of autonomous units, um, and I think it's got. A, I think it has to go that way. Um, when you sort of look at the look at the sort of size of the machines and what we're doing, and, and the sort of the technology involved in all the in the cabs and the operators, where the operators sat. Well, if you can just do away with that, you I mean, you reduce the cost for a start, um, but it enables businesses like mine or Adams where you've got a reduced labour pool. Say, well, actually, if a machine can go and do that and it's quite happy to go and sit on itself and do it, um, and we can concentrate on managing our businesses and not be in a tractor, that's, that's got to be a win.
1: Our your sure business is high value veg products, high value leaves. That is a sector that has a lot of autonomy in it already. So if I think about the things that I've seen and reported on, seen working, they're all focused around the value of the crop because fundamentally, capital costs need to spread it over a thing. If it's worth a lot more money, it's easy to spread the cost. Do you think your business would take on autonomy or by the nature of how your business operates, would it fit or wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, we definitely would if it was available and within a within a reasonable price. Um, so at the moment, everything we do is very machinery focused. So like we wouldn't grow a crop that had to be hand harvested just because of the labour nightmares associated with that. So yeah, I guess it's just waiting to see if something comes along but it always seems it's two years away for the last 10 years so i don't know when that's going to happen
1: okay finally so adam you're you're talking about you know a succession plan with your you know your children yeah would you encourage them to come into the business with a view of this autonomy will be the future so actually we need to you need to be thinking about managing systems and understanding the implementation of systems what do you think you'd introduce the business as, as Robert described it, a steering wheel attendant, which I think is doing down yourself somewhat, but it does describe it quite don't well. don't know him that well, then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think autonomy is is for the younger generation to get their heads around, really, and possibly, you know, I'm I'm sort of growing myself out of that area, but um, I think it is. I think it is for the future, and I don't think we can actually sort of stop progress because it is there, it's going to happen. Whether it's actually going to happen that fast really for us in North Herefordshire on our dilly little fields and steep banks and awkward little areas and that sort of thing, I'm not sure about that. Um, possibly at some point in the future. Um, Labour is something that I do feel has probably stilted my business in the fact that I think we've probably become so focused or have become so focused on efficiency, really much up to my maximum about what I can do maybe at some point I should have 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whenever it was, said, right, okay, I've got to start taking on more grants so that um, I can take a labour unit on. But really I saw it then that I had to double my acreage pretty much overnight to get the efficiency for the next year of where I already was. So and where we are, that's not easy to do. And then the implementation of, of that regarding um, finances, is another question. Um, So maybe, you know, expansion via drones and autonomous vehicles and stuff is, is an area that possibly would lead you into an easier expansion of a business. But you're almost then really, again, as we have been for some time in a race to the bottom, producing increasingly cheaper and cheaper and cheaper food. And would it benefit us as farmers? Probably not. It'd probably benefit the the middleman, um, or the middle person as it were, sort of buying the product from us and and, and putting it on the shelf. We'll get squeezed anyway, no matter whether we're here, we're now bums in seats, hands on steering wheels, or whether we're an autonomous vehicle. So yeah, I've got very much mixed views about it, I must admit.
1: As a final comment from all of you, what's the biggest risk to your business in the next twenty four months? Rob.
3: Uh, falling commodity prices to be honest
1: probably
0: the weather
1: adam
2: probably agree with rob i think it's difficult to to manage with everything that's going on in the world um trying to juggle input prices versus output prices really everything that's you know an unstable sort of internal um market as in you know sort of within the uk i don't think the government really have got any up- you know, sort of interested in us producing sustainably sourced food, or even food security, and then we've got to think about the about the outside influences of Ukraine, Korea, South America. I mean, there is a number of different influences out there that can adversely affect my business, and I wouldn't even see them coming down the line. So, uh, yeah, very unstable.
3: Yeah, I think uh, price price volatility. I mean, is is, is the biggest risk. Um, to most farming businesses at the moment. I mean, there was ex- the extreme volatility we've seen in the last two years. Um, you know, it's it's almost it's not impossible to manage, but it's very difficult to manage. Um, you know, when you've got high high input prices, fluctuating output prices. I think I think it's a it's a really big challenge that we've all try, got to try and manage. And as we as we speak. And anything could happen in ukraine or wherever in the next few weeks and all of a sudden we could either put 50 quid a ton on the price a week or lose 50 quid a ton on the price a week and and actually managing that is gonna is, is a huge challenge
1: thank you all i think i certainly found that very interesting listening to some different views there
0: Thank you very much for tuning in for today's episode of Crop It Like It's Hot. I hope it was a good one for you. Don't forget, if you've ever got any feedback or topic ideas for the podcast, you can email us on podcast at agriconnect.com. And I will see you next month.